Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Today we will continue in a series called Origins. Dave will come up and he will um, preach to us in just a few minutes. And as we will have our scripture reading at this time, Sister Erica Negi will come and lead us in our scripture reading. And as she's coming, I'm asking those that will and can please stand for the reading of God's word. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Well, on these cold winter afternoons that we have been having over uh, the past week or so, there is one uh, reliable sight in my house uh, that I know I will see every afternoon. There's this one spot Uh, in the front of our house in the dining room where the sun slants in uh, just the right way through the blinds, and it lights a little pool of light in our cold house right there on the floor. And I can always guarantee you that on a cold winter afternoon on that little pool of light on the wood floor, uh, you will find Baxter, our dog, uh, stretched out or curled up, uh, resting his old 13-year-old bones uh, on this little pool of light. Uh, In the midst of a cold house, it seems like such an inviting place uh, for him to stop whatever has preoccupied him, chasing lizards and barking at squirrels, uh, and to stretch out, to pause, and to rest a while. We're going to see today that that is the way that the Sabbath works in our lives. That in a cold world, it is a little spot, a little radiance of God's light that shines and invites us to come, to stop, to rest, to stretch out, and to rest for a while. It's a rest we see in this passage that radiates from the very nature of God himself. That it's not just that he commands us to rest, but that he is a God who in and of himself over creation is a God of rest. He is a God at rest. And the Sabbath is an invitation to us to share in the very rest of God. This passage comes at the end of God's creating all things, God creating the heavens and the earth out of nothing, God subduing and separating the sea from the dry land and the day from the night. And now we're told with God having finished his work, he rests. We've said uh, throughout this look at the early chapters of Genesis that the kinds of texts we ought to be comparing Genesis 1 and 2 with, uh, it's not written to be compared to a modern science textbook, right? But it's written to be compared to other ancient Near Eastern creation narratives, right? All of Israel's neighbors had their ideas about how the world came into be and how their gods, usually through violent battle, had come to to conquer over the other gods and the forces of chaos. 
And every single one of those ancient Near Eastern creation stories follows a pretty predictable pattern. The gods enter into battle. One god wins. He brings order to the world. And then he always does one thing next, which is he builds himself a temple. Or he asks his servants to build him a temple. And then the god, now having defeated his enemy, rests in his temple. Temples in the ancient world were thought of, a pla- thought of as places of the gods' rest. It was the place where the gods rested from their battle, from their work of maintaining the universe. And yet, uh, this creation story goes differently. You'll notice that it doesn't end with the God of Israel having created all things, commanding his people to build a temple. He doesn't consecrate a place and say, I'll rest there. Instead, he consecrates time. And he says, I now am resting here on the seventh day. This day, he says, he set aside, he blessed it, and he made it holy. That the God who fills all time and the God who fills all places says, now that I've ceased from my work, not through a violent battle, but simply we've seen him create just by the word of his mouth. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was, and it was good. And he now says, not over a particular temple, but over the whole world, I now rest as king. Rest uh, in this context doesn't mean that God is done working, right? God, uh, but what it does mean is that the hard work, the establishing work, the creative work is done, and he rests as king, and now he goes into the daily ordinary work of upholding his universe and caring for his creation as a king would rule over his kingdom And I love, you notice there's one very stark difference between the way that the author of Genesis describes the first six days and the seventh day. For the first six days, we get at the end every time, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day, all the way up to the sixth. But on uh, the Sabbath, on the seventh day, he doesn't say there was evening and there was morning on the seventh day. The author is pointing us to the fact that God's rest is continual. That God uh, doesn't enter into his rest, finishing his work on the sixth day, and then when the alarm clock goes off the next day, he rolls out of bed and groans about how he has a bad case of the Mondays and he doesn't want to go back to work. Right? No, no. God enters into rest and he stays at rest. He stays perfectly enthroned as the king over the universe, ruling it uh, by his word. We know that God is at rest because over and over in the scriptures, he invites Israel, when he invites Israel to rest, he invites them to join into his rest. When he invites them into the promised land, it's a place where he tells them that they can enter into his rest. They can enter into his ongoing rest in the world. And we see the pattern laid down in Exodus chapter 20, where we find Uh, the first account of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. God says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. Even give your animals a day off. Or the sojourner 
who is within your gates, the, the foreigner, the immigrant who comes in, they too are to be given rest. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God's command to Israel to rest on the Sabbath day, to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, is an invitation for them to join his pattern of rest. We were made to work. Israel was made to work. You notice that it says, for six days you do your labor. In Genesis earlier, it says that we were made to work, that we were made to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over it. You do that for six days, he tells Israel, but on the seventh day you stop and you rest and you worship and you recharge. He invites us to join in to his rest. One of my favorite uh, contemporary accounts of the Sabbath. There's a wonderful uh, short book uh, by an Old Testament theologian named Walter Brueggemann. The book is called Sabbath as Resistance. Sabbath as Resistance. And the main idea of his book is that we have so much in our world that is trying to pressure us into thinking of ourselves uh, purely in terms of what we produce, what we do, and what we consume. Right, that your value as a person lies in what you do when you show up to work. It lies in what you produce or in a consumer society, what you're able to buy and to accumulate. And so he says the Sabbath is God's plan, God's anecdote for a world that tells us we can never truly rest. That our value is in what we do and not in who we are. Our value is in what we can do to work to make the world into our own image not in in receiving the fact that we are God's image bearers, made to live in relationship with him, made to live with certain limits. He writes, the Sabbath is resistance because it is a visible insistence that our lives are not defined by the production and consumption of commodity goods. And so we want to look this morning at three ways uh, that we receive the invitation from God to join in his rest. First, the Sabbath is an invitation to be human in a dehumanizing world. An invitation to be truly human in a dehumanizing world. You know, the first thing that we're invited to do at the Sabbath is just to stop. To stop. To stop our work, yes, but to stop all of those things that we busy ourselves with and preoccupy ourselves with all of the rest of the time. We can't keep this Sabbath. We can't enter into God's rest unless we learn to stop. This is an invitation to recognize our limits as human beings. Right? You are a human being. You're not, uh, as Genesis has been at pains to point out, you are not the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, uh, everywhere, all at once, creator of the universe. You're a creature. You can only be uh, one place at once. You can only know so much in your mind. Uh, you're going to forget things, right? There, you can only push your body and your mind and your heart so far before you start to bump into the limits of your created abilities, before you start to run into the limits of what your mind and your body can handle. Being a human being uh, means that you will always have more on your to-do list than you can accomplish. 
Right? That is, I don't know if there's anything more frustrating than when I leave the office on the last day of the work week and I go to check my to-do list of the stuff that I had meant to get done. And you go, oh, well, I didn't get this done and I didn't get that done and I missed on this. And because you're a human being, the answer isn't, well, I guess I'll just stay at work until I get it all done. I guess I'll just stay up for 48 straight hours until I finish it. It means that at some point, the sun is going to go down on the day Your energy is going to wane, your eyes are going to get heavy, and you are going to feel the pull towards bed. I remember as a college student uh, resisting this law uh, with my attempts to learn as much as I could to cram as much information into my brain as I could before exam time. And I remember eating, uh, drinking pots and pots and pots of coffee to try to keep myself up. And then realizing usually about three or four in the morning that at some point I had to surrender uh, to my creatureliness, that I just couldn't keep it going. We have to receive our limits. You're made as a human being, a human being in need of rest. You are a man, you're a woman, Uh, you are not a machine. I have uh, an old car. I have a car that is approaching 200,000 miles. Uh, and I do not have a plan to give my car a break. Uh, I plan, uh, it has one job in my life, uh, to get me and my people and my stuff uh, where I need them to be safely and on time without breaking down. Uh, It's a machine. As long as it continues to meet that function, I will drive it until I can no longer drive it, until it tells me it's time to stop, Uh, right? It's a machine, and its value is in what it does. As a human being, uh, your value is not in what you do. Your worth to God and to your neighbors and into your family is not in what you do. You are not made to be driven until your engine stops. Elsewhere in Deuteronomy, when God gives uh, Israel the command to keep Sabbath, you know what his reasons are there? He says, before you were slaves in Egypt, you were treated not as people but as machines. Right? The Pharaoh viewed the Israelites as pyramid-building machines, palace-building machines. He didn't care about their worth. He didn't care about their dignity. He didn't care about their tiredness. They had a job, which was to build for him in the way that he wanted it, when he wanted it. And if they stopped, if they died, if they got tired, just fill in their spot with another one. And God says, no, no, I have redeemed you from being slaves. I've redeemed you from being machines. Your identity is not in what you can do for more powerful people. Your your identity is not in what you can earn for yourself. Your identity, as we've seen, is that you are the image bearers of God, that you bear and reflect something of his beauty and his dignity and his love in the world. We have to talk, friends, about the way that technology uh, in our world serves to further dehumanize us. I read uh, somewhere that prior to the invention of the light bulb, prior to Thomas Edison's invention of the light bulb, the average American got 11 hours of sleep a night. 11 hours of sleep a night uh, before we had this marvelous invention of the light bulb. So now that we could work longer, stay up later, get more done, man, I, would, I, I, would, I don't want to tell you what I'd do for 11 hours of sleep. That's amazing. <laughs> and that's just the light bulb. <laughs> 
Think about how much further our technology has pressed us since the light bulb. The light bulb is now something that we take utterly for granted. But think about the wave of technology that has hit us just in our lifetime. Most of us carry around in our pocket what 20 years ago we would have considered a supercomputer. Right, And now it fits in our pocket and it gives us the world on demand. Technology has not only prolonged our days by giving us later and later nights, but it's also entirely blurred the distinctions and the boundaries between one, one type of time and another, one type of work and another, one type of activity and another. You can work 24 hours a day. You never have to be separated from your work email. It dings if you're ever needed. Time becomes, every time becomes just as good as any other time, just as every place becomes just like every other place. There's no longer a time where the world from outside of you will tell you you have to stop. You have to be where you are in your home with your family, with the people that you've been given, or with the neighbors, or out on a walk. Right? Every time you're always available to everything. And it's made us more anxious, more overworked, more exhausted. We go to sleep staring at our work on a little tiny screen. We wake up to check and see what we've missed. Never, ever do we let ourselves truly rest. And so the invitation of the Sabbath is the invitation to remember your humanity and to return your life to a human scale. A time when you can't be everywhere at once, be with everyone at once, check, on, check in on your thousands of followers, but a place where you're called to remember to be where you are. These friends, this family, this congregation, these meals, this home, this neighborhood, to take a nap in this bed, to slow down long enough to really enter into a time of rest. Now the fear... The fear for all of us is what it's always been. Ever since Israel first received the commandment to enter into one day and seven for rest, they have had the same fear that all of us have. But I'll fall behind. Right? If I stop, if I stop for even 24 hours, I'll fall behind. Right? If, if, I, if I don't go to work on Sunday and my coworkers do, I'm going to get passed over for the promotion. Right? If I don't study and do my homework on Sundays, and all my classmates do, I'm going to fall behind the grading curve and not be able to keep up. If I don't enter into activity after activity, sports and instruments and all of those things that we put our kids into on Sundays, they're going to fall behind and not get into the college of their or my dreams. We'll fall behind. We think that we're the first people in history to have these concerns. And yet, remember, for Israel, uh, the concerns were much more life and death. Right? If I don't get out and plow my field or plant my grain or harvest my crops on this day, I'll fall behind. And falling behind might be a matter not of getting into your B choice of college, but dying. <laughs> right? Not having enough to eat. And yet God still said, no, no, I know. I know, and still rest, stop, relax. The concern about falling behind uh, is ultimately not a concern about falling behind, but a concern about trust. 
It's about trusting uh, that there is a God who cares for us, even when we stop our ceaseless labor. That there's a God who looks over us and provides for us. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. You'll only ever be still. You'll only ever stop and rest when you have the other side of that equation and know that I am God. And know that your welfare, your promotion, your grades, your future, all of it isn't in your hands, it's in my hands. I am your God, and I watch out for you. God gave Israel this amazing object lesson in stopping. Uh, When he led them out of Egypt, when he led them through the wilderness, and remember the story of him raining down bread from heaven on them. Right? That they were in the when they were in the middle of the wilderness and couldn't feed themselves, it would literally rain bread. What a great, you'd think, man, if there was any place where I would learn trust, if I was hungry and I just went out and, you know, held out my jacket and God filled it with bread and I walked in, I would think that then I would learn that God can be trusted and he cares for me and he provides for me. And yet when God told them, but on the seventh day, don't go out and catch bread from heaven. It's not going to rain bread from heaven on that day. What did they say? They said, God, but if it doesn't rain bread from heaven on that day, we'll die. Right? If I can't eat, if, it does, if you don't provide for us that day, and God says, no, no, learn to trust. I'm going to give you enough on the sixth day to, that you'll be satisfied on the seventh as well. You're not going to go hungry. Be still, rest, and know that I am God. So it's an invitation to recover our humanity in a dehumanizing age. It's an invitation to a spiritual life in a secular world invitation to a spiritual life in a secular world. You know, the Sabbath is not simply about rest. Uh, in fact, if you were to go out and say, hey, I think, it, you know, tell your neighbors, tell anyone, I think it's important that you take a day off. Most people, Christian or not, would say, agreed. Yeah, take a day off. Go water skiing, take a big long nap, do whatever you want to do. It's good. It's important to take a day off. But the Sabbath isn't just an invitation to rest. It's also an invitation to worship. It's an invitation to enter into sacred time and to worship God on his time. He set this day aside as a holy day, as a day that he is to be worshipped. Now, Israel, uh, Israel was smart enough to not believe that God could only be reached on the Sabbath. right? They knew that he wasn't keeping banker's hours and only available between the hours of Uh, 9 and 11 on Saturday mornings. No, it wasn't a matter of him not being accessible other times. In fact, Israel uh, had quickly as their habit, uh, they adopted the posture of praying three times a day, uh, one that Christians uh, have largely emulated. Uh, In keeping Paul's command that we pray without ceasing, we know that anytime you have a need for God, you can talk to him, you can pray to him, you can worship him. All time belongs to God. And yet, there's a sense in which if every time is just as sacred as any other time, then quickly all time gets robbed of God's presence, right? If he's always there and there's never a time when we focus and say, no, no, but during this time, during this time, we're going to prioritize seeking God's face. During this time, we're going to prioritize being in that place where we as his image bearers come into his presence. We're fed and nourished by his grace. We meet with him in prayer and song. We gather with his people. 
that this time, joining God in worship during the Sabbath, uh, enriches and spills his presence over into every other bit of our days. And so we need a rhythm in our lives in which we come and center our lives on God himself. In a world in which there is never really enough time to do anything, where we always leave stuff undone, it is so incredibly easy for worship to become one more thing to try to fit in. Right? For worship to be one more item on our to-do list to try to check off if we're able. And yet, God says, uh, in the New Testament, we see the Sabbath uh, shift from the, uh, sixth and fi- or from the seventh and final day of the week to the first day of the week. Uh, the early Christians did this uh, because Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week. And as a way of saying Jesus has started a new creation here on this day. But it also tells us something, doesn't it? That now the Sabbath, our, our invitation into worship, is the first day of the week. That it's the first thing that we're to give our attention to. Not one more item of many to try to get in uh, if we manage to find the time. And in doing this, it becomes the center point of our lives, the center point of our calendar, the center point of our hearts that shapes all the rest of our week. Ralph Waldo Emerson, great American thinker and writer, said this, What we are worshiping, we are becoming. What we are worshiping, we are becoming. That thing or being or person that you put at the very center of your gaze, the center of your attention and your worship, you're becoming. You are being made in its image. You might say that our deities uh, come to shape our identities. I want to look at two examples of how this works in practice. From two uh, geniuses uh, of the last centuries. Uh, The first is Charles Darwin, author of The Origin of Species, uh, scientific genius, a biologist who gave his life uh, to studying the world, who uh, penned the theory of evolution. Here's what he writes in his journal. He says, my chief enjoyment and sole employment throughout life has been scientific work. He goes on to add, I am never idle. My science is the only thing which makes life endurable to me. It's my chief enjoyment, my sole employment, and the only thing that makes this life endurable for me. He reflected later on in his journals towards the end of his life, Listen to the sadness in these words. Up to the age of 30, poetry gave me great pleasure, and I took intense delight in Shakespeare. But now, for many years, I found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine. There's that word again. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. This loss has been a loss of happiness. I became a withered leaf for every subject except science. He was able to look back on his life and acknowledge that this was an evil, that this was uh, to his detriment, that he'd come to so identify with his work, so take pleasure in his work, that everything else became robbed of his pleasure. He could find no satisfaction anywhere else. Now contrast that with this, Jonathan Edwards, a great New England uh, Protestant pastor, wrote this, 
at the age of 19. Resolved. This is a, he wrote a series of hundreds of commitments or resolutions as a teenager and early 20-something. Resolved to cast my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him and consecrate myself wholly to him. Later in his life, he reflects on how setting Jesus as the object of his worship had affected him over the years. And he said this, it brought an expressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and ravishment to my soul. In other words, it made my soul like a garden or a field. Two men with two utterly different life commitments. One gets to the end and says, my soul has become like a withered leaf. The other says, my soul is like a garden. And the principal difference between these two paths lied in the way of worship. Do you worship your work? Do you worship your productivity? Do you worship what you can accomplish? Or do you take a moment to lift your eyes off of what can be measured, what can be accounted for, and set it on Jesus? And have your soul become like a garden that can give life to you and others. This didn't happen for Edwards overnight, uh, but Sunday by Sunday, day by day, in ways often imperceptible, attending uh, to the one who made him. Now, for those of us uh, who struggle in some way with addiction, uh, which, if we're honest, is all of us, right? Is all of us. You can recognize something in Darwin's words of the addict, can't you? I stopped enjoying these other things in my life that were once very, very enjoyable, and now only this one thing gave me joy. Right? I became so fixated and focused on this one thing that it caused everything else in my life to become like a withered leaf. And I believe that's because, and I think we need to hear this, that for many of us, addiction is a counterfeit Sabbath, right? If Sabbath is the invitation to rest and to worship, what do our addictions tell us? They tell us, oh, you've, you've been working so hard. You've been doing so much. Take something for you, right? Engage in this behavior. Engage in this substance. Click on this website. Buy a little bit more on the internet, right? Do this thing. Satisfy this addiction. You've earned this moment of rest. It also becomes an object of worship, right? Our lives are not worth living if we can't have this, possess this, experience this. The Sabbath is an invitation for those of us who know ourselves to be addicts, who know ourselves to be chasing after rest, to be chasing after escape, to be chasing after some uh, imitation of transcendence, an invitation to rest and to stop into worship. And then finally, the Sabbath is an invitation to grace in an unforgiving world. An invitation to grace in an unforgiving world. Now listen, here is perhaps one of the saddest ironies uh, of humanity. Uh, that as long as there's been a Sabbath, there has been a human propensity to turn the Sabbath into an occasion for self-righteousness. Right, that's why you won't hear me uh, from up here getting, look, I'm not here to micromanage your life. Uh, I'm not here to tell you if you should do this on a Sunday or do that, whether you're allowed to do this or not allowed to do that. What I'd like to do is introduce the question to you before you say yes to something on the Sabbath, that you at least ask the question, does this commitment facilitate worship, joy, and rest for me and my family? Right, but I can't tell you, I can't 
I can't manage your calendar and tell you, no, no, this is restful, this is not restful, this is worshipful, this is not worshipful. And the history of God's people is of people turning the invitation to rest into one more opportunity for work, one more opportunity to compete and decide who can rest better and worship better than other people. Right? How sick is that? The people could take the invitation to stop and rest and worship And yet the Pharisees of Jesus' day had appointed themselves the Sabbath police. They said, okay, worship and rest, got it. We're going to worship and rest better than anybody's ever worship and rested. In fact, if you don't worship and rest in precisely the right ways at the right times and the right right clothes and the right times, we're going to come around and we're going to make ourselves the hall monitors of God's Sabbath. We're going to tell you, oh, no, no, you walk too far on a Sabbath. You shouldn't do that. In fact, we see this over and over in the Gospels. Matthew 12 has these great uh, stories of Jesus' interaction with, the, with the, the Pharisees. He and his disciples are walking through the, the field on a Sabbath, and they stop and pick grain because they're hungry and start to eat it. And the Pharisees come around and go, eh, eh, you know, hall monitors, violation. Stop it. Jesus, you ought not do that. Then uh, Jesus goes on, very next verses, sees a man with his hand shriveled uh, from a disability, and he says, extend your hand, and he does. And he asks him, what's lawful on the Sabbath, to take life or to give it, to heal or to make sick? And he says these words, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You don't tell me how to treat my Sabbath, it's my day. He tells them, in essence, I am the Sabbath. Right? I am the Sabbath. The Sabbath, I am God's rest extending to his people. He is the one who we learn is gentle and lowly in heart, who invites us to come to him to take his yoke upon us. Why? So that we can find rest for our souls. The final words of Jesus on the cross I believe are written specifically uh, as an echo of Genesis 2. Genesis 2.1, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. It's finished. Not only my creating work, but now my redeeming work. I've defeated my enemies and your enemies. I've defeated sin forever. I've taken away death and its punishment. It's finished, all of it. You know, friends, if we're honest, the reason we don't rest has very little to do with external demands on us, right? Sometimes it is. There's seasons where you got a boss that just doesn't understand, and he overworks you, and he overdrives you, and he makes you stay too late. Sometimes there are external demands, but usually the reason we can't rest, it's not because of an external time clock that we think we have to punch, but it's out of an internal time clock that we just can't stop. Something in us that says, I've got to do more, be more, achieve more for the world and for God. And Jesus says, it is finished. It's finished. You can stop the clock. You can stop mounding up uh, your list of accomplishments. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to earn your way. You don't have to produce for God. Rest. Take my yoke on you. I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find real rest, deep rest, lasting rest for your souls. In just a minute, we're going to sing 
Uh, what, it's, hard, it's hard to say I have a favorite hymn, but I think we might be singing my favorite hymn. Matt thinks this is my favorite hymn, I should say. Uh, whenever we get together and Matt goes, you know, usually when we're planning our worship services, Matt goes, Dave, is there, you know, what, what's your theme? Is there, is there a right song that we should end on? And I say, what about Jesus, I am resting? And Matt goes, we could do that. I just want to draw your attention to the fact that you always say that. And, uh, and, I, and point well taken. Um, and I think it's because this song is so much of what my heart uh, needs these days. The lyrics go something like this, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. When new members join the church, uh, the vows that you take, many of you will remember this, we ask, uh, do you receive and rest on Jesus Christ alone for salvation? And those words just stick with me. Uh, so often we think of, have you received Jesus? Right? Have you received Jesus by faith as Savior? Have you prayed that prayer, walked that aisle, done that thing? Have you embraced Jesus by faith? But I love the next part. Have you rested in him? Having received him by faith, have you admitted that there's nothing left that you're searching for? There's nothing out there beyond Jesus that you have to keep working or striving for? There's not some righteousness you have to produce, some answer you've got to find for what's wrong with your life. You receive him, and then you rest. You stop. You worship. You enjoy him. Lord Jesus, we come to you as a people uh, who often don't know how to rest, and we don't know how to stop. We don't know how to lift our eyes off of what we can see and touch and to fix them on what is unseen. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, help us to rest in you. Lord, we confess that we are restless about many things. There's so much that preoccupies our hearts and our minds. There's times where we're concerned with our very survival. There's times we're so concerned with our jobs, with our relationships. Lord, there is so much that troubles us. And yet, Lord, our lives are not in our own hands. They belong to you. Our destiny isn't in our own hands, but in your uh, nail-scarred hands. Lord, help us uh, to trust the one who loved us so much that he gave himself for us. Help us to trust that one in those hands with our days and our nights, with our work, with our families, with our rest. Lord Jesus, help us to rest in you, in your goodness, in your mercy, and in your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.